welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. to the third episode of our look at White Tears on the Tent Talks podcast. My name is Stephen Backhouse, and I'm a teacher and a writer and a speaker who often talks about justice and injustice, about Christian culture and Christendom, about following the way of Jesus, and about using power in right ways and bad ways. And as a result of all of these things that I like to talk about, I often come across problems that just make me sad, frustrated, and deeply angry. And quite often, I cry when I'm talking, or when I'm thinking about these things. I'm a white man, and I've found that in the past when I've cried in front of audiences, I get rewarded. People think that it's good or brave of me, as a powerful white man, to cry in the face of injustice and evil that has been done, let's face it, usually to women, usually to people of colour, and always by strong people who think that it's their right to subjugate others to their will. And long story short, I have benefited from this system, and it's probably quite likely that you have too. Personally, I am a white Canadian, and I grew up on land that was stolen from Indigenous people. And who amongst my listeners can't say that in some way they are beneficiaries of a system that involved slavery, violent takeover of native lands, the accumulation and gathering of resources that belonged to one people group and instead was pooled and centralised into some empire or dominant culture. And I would be very surprised if anyone listening to this podcast wasn't the beneficiary of a system that did all this rape, pillage, and torture in the name of Christianity. I was taught that Christianity was a source of truth and that followers of Jesus loved the truth. I still think that is true. (laughs) And I also think that you cannot tell the true story of the rise of Christian culture and of Christendom without talking about slavery, torture, genocide, and rape. This is also part of the truth. And for this reason, I am going to issue a bit of a trigger warning for this episode. We will be discussing some of these things because we are discussing Christian history. And I'm sorry that that is the case, but it's also true. Another part of this thing that we have inherited, this thing called Christian empire or Christendom, is that we don't know what to do with it. A lot of times, white people especially will hear about the truth of the civilizations and the Western civilizations that they have founded and that they are now enjoying the benefits of, and they will cry. They will be moved 
to tears, to tears of frustration, to tears of rage, to tears of empathy and sorrow at what has been done in their name and for their sake. And that's also part of what these podcasts are about. What do we do when we're aware of this stuff? How do we act and how do we react? I told you that I was rewarded as a speaker who cries sometimes. But it's not always true that every single audience member acts in the same way or approaches white tears in the same way. And this was the spur for this series. Some people don't trust white tears. White tears have been used to skirt around injustice. White tears have been used to focus attention on the person crying rather than on the reason why the tears arrived in the first place. White tears have been weaponized, used in toxic ways to bring down violence upon black and brown bodies. And white tears are often used as the spur to continue the cycles of systematic violence, which keep empire, Christendom, and yes, even white nationalism firmly in place. Not just as a historical curiosity, but as a present-day lived experience. This is happening right now to people you know or to your neighbors. And this is what we're going to look at today as I continue my conversation with Dr. Sarah Mosliner and then with Lisa Sharon Harper. Both women, in their different ways, are experts in the phenomenon of white women's tears, which is our subject for the next hour. Dr. Sarah Mosliner. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, Anthropology, and Religion at Central Michigan University. I'm the author of Virgination, Sexual Purity, and American Adolescence, and a new book called After Purity about people who've grown up and out of evangelical purity culture and the way that intersects with white Christian nationalism. Yeah, so the phrase white tears makes me think and feel about how white racial identity has been constructed, uh, which is something I study and focused, especially in the United States. Um, But one thing I have learned in studying the history of colonialism is that where Europeans have colonized the uh, the notion of white tears, we might also call it white fragility, as has been popularized by Robin DiAngelo, has been has been present. That it is a tool of the colonizer. When we're talking about European colonization, and um, and one of the things I think it's important for us to understand is we really have not come to terms with how the logic of colonialism has impacted the present. You know, as someone who who lives and teaches in the United States, I think about that a lot in the courses I teach on religion and race. And so, colonization was very much about bringing together European dominance and Christian supremacy. And the people on the ground who did the colonizing work in many contexts 
be- believed that they were they were doing what they were called to do. Right. This is and when we think about all the generations of missionaries, you know, sort of doing this work, whether we're talking about the Jesuits in the 17th century or the Methodists in the 19th century, there was this sense of, you know, we have a spiritual gift to bring to the heathens. I've just started reading Catherine Jin Lohm's new book, Heathen, which is an incredible look at the history of that concept. But this sense that white European Christians had something to offer and that that was a burden on them to go out, you know, the white man's burden as Kipling called it, to go out and bring light, bring civilization, bring progress. And of course, this is all wrapped up in mythologies about the United States, but there are pockets of it all over the globe where Europeans have colonized and particularly use the Christian religion to justify colonization. So white tears occur when white people are told that the work that they are doing, which they feel God has called them to, which they feel is the core of their identity, are told this isn't quite working or you're actually doing something harmful or please, please stop (laughs) or, or just straight up hostility. So what's been happening in these last few years is that white racial identity, white supremacy have become more visible. And of course, that's making white people deeply uncomfortable and finding different ways to respond to that. And I am especially interested in the way white women have responded to that, right? And we've seen sort of some spectacular examples of that. I start in the 19th century with my argument. I'm sure other historians could start in other places, um, but for the particular argument I'm making rooted in purity culture, I go back to the 19th century and the creation of Victorian gender roles in the United States and this notion of separate spheres, that women stay in the home and do domestic work and have a certain set of virtues, which are piety, purity, domesticity, and submission. And then men have to go out into sort of the dirty world of politics and commerce and might have to do things that are that are not virtuous because that's what's necessary. That's what was necessary for the United States to become an economic and political power. And there was some discomfort around that because you have um, colonial Americans were very hardworking, humble, don't want to be fancy. But in the 19th century, you have families that are starting to uh, gain wealth and have Uh, like extra income and be able to purchase things. So this is the growth of the middle class. This is the upward mobility that everyone wanted. That was the idea of the United States, right? That anyone could, again, this sort of rugged individualism, but there was anxiety about the lack of virtue in that. But of course, they're not just going to like get rid of it. (laughs) So they merge together 
this feminine ideal, piety, purity, domesticity, and submission, and this masculine ideal of sort of like conquering commerce and the public world and achieving and, and moving things toward greatness, right? And you bring those together and that creates a kind of a balance that's needed so that capitalism can continue to reign free, but also um, have this veneer of virtue. So this was, um, and this is Gail Biederman's argument in her book, Manliness and Civilization. This is not my own, my own idea, but within that, and of course these are ideals, right? These aren't actual people's experiences. So, so within that, and this is of course become ideals about whiteness and about middle-classness. So this is where we get the idea of a certain, a certain kind of family that's best for the thriving of the nation states. And so within that, then you have white women who are well-educated, who are not quite excited about the whole submission and domesticity part, but they can use the piety and purity in order to insert themselves into public life. And this is the argument then that women make, that white women make about increased political involvement, including the right to vote. So this is all tied up in first wave feminism. But into that then, you know, come these ideas about this idealization of white womanhood as being essential to civilization, right? That white women are the height of civilization and therefore they need to be protected, right? They're pious and pure. They need to be protected. They need to be, right, in order to be able to do the work that's necessary to have virtue in the nation state. And of course, what that ends up doing is creating, the only way you can create those ideals, and this is what was happening at the time, you have this pedestal being built. You also have women who are enslaved and women whose bodies are being used and abused to enhance the wealth of white families and the wealth of the nation. And those things can't, those things have to coexist. In order for white women to have this special status, you have to have the abject. So this white pedestal is being built on the belief that this is something exclusive to white women. Now, what's interesting is in the late 19th century, very quickly, you have Black women who are going to challenge this and say, no, 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 this is not about whiteness, right? Femininity isn't about whiteness. It's about domesticity. Purity is not just for white women. And and so uh, Black women in particular had to argue that this was something they were entitled to going all the way back to Sojourner Truth. Ain't I a woman? You know, we see it again in Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, where she's pleading with readers to not judge her too harshly for not being sexually pure. So there's this dynamic that's happening around sexual purity in the 19th century that is engaging in conversations between white women and black women because it's it's really being used as a wedge to to uh, reinforce this. So white womanhood, or as I think about sort of the 
uh, the formation of white womanhood becomes this uh, this pure image that represents the United States. You know, I think the best representation of this is John Gast's image, American Progress, which has a white woman sort of floating across the landscape and pushing out the Native Americans and bringing in white men and their gardening tools and commerce and all of these sorts of things and and all kinds of progress, right? So white white women came to represent the growth of civilization. And so that to me is the origin of white womanhood in the United States. And of course, this notion, the idea of white women representing civilization, and you have all these missionaries going out in the 19th century, taking that same notion. And that, and many white women became missionaries in the 19th century because that was one option they had. And that, that would allow them to not have to get married and have children, that they could go do that. And, uh, and so these ideals were then transferred into the colonial context. I mean, certainly this phenomenon of white women's tears is very contemporary, though if we look at it more broadly as white fragility, or another concept I've been working with is white racial ignorance, which is a term developed by Jennifer Mueller, who's a sociologist. If we think about this as sort of whiteness as delusion, and white racial identity as as delusion. You have an ignorance, and, and, and the way she defines ignorance is not that it's a lack of knowledge, but it is a particular form, it is a particular production of non-knowledge. And that, I think, is very much a part of the socialization of white people in the United States, especially when it comes to the history of the United States, that non-knowledge, and it's interesting how that you see non-knowledge show up in white evangelical spaces, right? Purity culture is a great example of that. If you just sort of normalize ignorance around racism, and of course, this is a subset of colorblindness. You don't think about race. Race isn't really a thing. So why should we think about it? So, but one of the places I have seen in my 19th century research, and I don't know if there were tears or not, but, um, and this is significant because one of the, one of the places where white women's significance is really comes into play is in the history of racial terror lynchings in the United States. One of the first people to write about that and raise alarm about it was Ida B. Wells, who would become a prominent anti-lynching activist. She was also uh, a suffragist. She um, was in favor of women's right to vote, of course, had to deal with all sorts of racism within the ranks of those white feminists. But, you know, she started writing very clearly about racial terror lynchings and the mythologies around them. See, the the mythology of lynching, the lynching myth, as she called it, was rooted in two different stereotypes. The myth of the black male rapist, which became especially prominent after the end of Reconstruction and was cemented in sort of the U.S. white imagination through Birth of a Nation, 
the film that was like huge, you know, was even, I almost said streamed. It was even shown at the White House, this representation of black, of a black man as, as sexually aggressive toward white women, right? And then conversely, you have the sexually pure white woman. This is the lynching myth. And, and what, Ida B. Wells discovered is that so many lynchings began because of a rumor of a relationship between a black man and a white woman. And so she started speaking the truth about those and saying, first of all, right, sometimes they're just completely made up. For example, the Tulsa race massacre that happened in the 30s was because of a rumor that a young black man spoke inappropriately to a white woman. A rumor, and they flattened the entire black neighborhood, including a very prosperous econo- economy. And so, so these rumors were so incredibly powerful. White womanhood here was a symbol that was being used to justify anti-black violence, and that that has been replicated over and over again in all sorts of different contexts. So it's a weird kind of manipulation that women get stuck into, but also learn to perpetuate it because white women especially benefit from it. Yeah, so the Karen meme is, and I can't remember where I read this, but I read a great article that said like, And the title was something like, Black people have always had a name for Karen. And going all the way back to the 19th century, this of a particular kind of white woman. So there's a whole history there that I think is really important to think about. I mean, I think it's easy to kind of dismiss something when it becomes a viral sensation, but there's something very real there, a very real dynamic. But I was getting back to this example of white fragility, white anxiety, Ida B. Wells has all this evidence that lynchings are happening and they are unjust. And one of the things she says is these liaisons, where there are liaisons between white women and black men, they are consensual. And even saying something like that in the 19th century, because she said that her newspaper got burned, like her offices got burned. She was, she was threatened with lynching. And, and other people have said similar things and, and there's been riots to just suggest that a white woman could have a consensual sexual relationship with a black man. As this information is becoming more available, you have someone like Frances Willard, who's the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, deeply involved in social purity work, deeply involved in increasing white women's political power, which is all rooted in the notion of white women's sexual purity and religious piety, because the argument is we are naturally these things, therefore we should have the right to vote, (laughs) right? And would even use this as an argument against why white women should have the right to vote before black men, because this is how white supremacy and patriarchy work, pitting groups against each other. And Frances Willard was more than willing to do that. And she went after Ida B. Wells and says, you know, she's impugned half the race by saying this. Like, how dare we even imagine this? And so they had a very public debate back and forth. And everything Willard said was so classic white fragility response. 
it was all about like, well, just sort of explaining it away. Well, lynching doesn't really happen. It only happens on the margins of our society. So downplaying it. But her unwillingness to look at evidence (laughs) and say, yes, this is happening. Now, there was a very specific political reason why she would not, why she attacked Wells. And it was because she was trying to work with white women in the South get them to start chapters of the WCTU. She could not say anything that could be understood as being anti-lynching because that's just an attack on the South as a whole because that was a way that one of the main ways, aside from Jim Crow segregation, that really kind of kept the race line intact. So her response to it, and again, I don't know if there were tears, (laughs) but her sort of unwillingness and her willingness to remain ignorant, willful ignorance is something that I think is, is still very consistent with white racial identity today. I spend a lot of time thinking about white liberalism because that is the category I fit into and thinking about what are the things that get me, that get me riled up. First of all, grief is a good response to learning about boarding schools. I teach about Native American boarding schools every semester, and usually I'm just met by silence because students don't. And And so where I am here in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, there was a boarding school. I teach that history, and it is not a good history. And, and there's a lot that we don't know. For example, the way that my university was involved in that school, which we have not talked about. And it's interesting. Whiteness is so rooted in innocence. And and I think that white tears, people of color find white tears suspicious because how do you tell the difference between genuine grief and a performance of innocence? Especially if you represent the group that is responsible. (laughs) for an atrocity. What do you do with that? And I think that, I mean, it's better what I think what most commonly happens when people, especially if people have been nurtured in sort of a lack of knowledge and this non-knowledge about race is cognitive dissonance and an absolute resistance. Um, This has nothing to do with me. That happened long ago to the point of anger. I see this in students all the time. And then that can oftentimes transform into tears. So it's, it's an emotionally complex thing. And if people of color are like, I think are in a position of having to decide, is this person being really sincere or not? And are just like, I don't have time for this. So I think that's part of it, is this sort of performance of innocence that has worked so well for white people for so very long, and tears can often be be part of that. Something that I've been talking about more and I've been hearing more people talk about is uh, white supremacy culture and the different sort of habits and assumptions about white supremacy culture. And this was a... A list created by Tema Okun, who's been an anti-racist educator since the 80s. And one of the things she listed, and she she was at a meeting with people of different races at an organization, because she does organizational work, and there was a lot of tension in the room, racial tension. And she went back to her office and she wrote down 
the places where the tension was, where she saw whiteness being prioritized and the kind of things that white people felt able to do that people of color could not. And one of the things in her list that has been most helpful for me in my own work is the concept of white supremacy means that white people's emotions are always genuine, are always real, always have to be taken at face value. And therefore, white people always have the right to comfort. So this is why white women's tears are so powerful because it's it's an indication and white men's tears, an indication that I'm the one that needs comforted now when systemically <laughs> that doesn't make sense. So we're in a place where we're, we are really struggling with how to understand the individual in the context of the systemic. And this is where I think critics of critical race theory are, are deeply confused because they see a systemic analysis and they think it's an individual analysis. So tears can become a weapon in that context. If I were to say something like this to a group, right, have this talk and they're all with me, right? The very first question I'm going to get is, well, where do we go now? What do we do? And that is also a component of white supremacy culture in that, like, we're always trying to achieve. We're always trying to move forward. We're not just able to sit with it. We're not able to sort of study and contemplate. We must, like, everything is urgent. We must change it now. And white people, and even just the assumption that a group of white people can say, we can change this, is like, um, historically, we as a group have not been great, (laughs) right? Maybe we need to think about who we are listening to, what our instincts are telling us. I think that's something, you know, this, again, that Puritan scrupulosity can be used for good purposes to think about, okay, why was that my response to this particular story? Why did I feel defensive? Why did I feel pity? Why did I feel shame? I think that there's a lot of interpersonal work that white people need to do that we've barely started to do. Because of us, people of color have have to go through the world feeling absolutely surveilled, feeling absolutely controlled and careful about how they speak, how they dress, right? How they show up in all white spaces. White people don't have to do that. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, and I'm the president and founder of Freedom Road. I'm also an author, activist, public theologian, and artist. A Facebook Live conversation that I had with Jen Hatmaker called White Women's Toxic Tears. It got like a million views. I mean, literally, it literally went viral. Um, it got uh, about 100,000 views from my on my page, and it, which is by far the most anything's ever been seen on my page. And then about, um, about almost 900,000 views on, on Jennifer's page. This was June 1st. 2020. 
So it was right after George Floyd, but it actually wasn't in response to George Floyd. It was in response to um, to the bird watcher in New York and the white woman who who cried and literally called the police saying, I'm going to get you. And then called the police with her little toxic tears saying, I'm being accosted. I'm being attacked. And you're sitting there watching her not being attacked and instead brutalizing her dog. That night, we actually heard people repeating verbatim things that we had said as they were interviewed at the marches at George, I mean, for George Floyd around the country in Texas and other places. Because of the manipulation of tears, particularly by white women, but also by white men, they're they're kind of suspect now. <laughs> I have to I have to sit back and just say, okay, what is this about? And I also have to understand, I do understand that white people are humans too. And as a human being, tears are a part of life. They're real. They're, they come from a very real place of pain, or they can. But there is a very particular way that people of European descent have been trained, actually, to use their tears in order to slip out of the hands of accountability, to squeeze empathy from a moment, and, and actually to become the hero even when they aren't. Recently, one of the things that's become very clear, I don't know the politics of all of your listeners, but I mean, I've been watching, I've been watching as an evangelical, understanding that truth, Jesus says, I am the truth. So when you hide truth, crush truth, twist truth, um, you're hiding, crushing, and twisting Jesus. And I have watched as politicians, particularly on one side of the aisle at this point, because the, the party in question, the GOP, has actually left its core. They, they, have, they have actually um, betrayed their own values and betrayed their core. And they have become a party that has capitalized or tried to. And actually, their main strategy for staying alive now is to capitalize on victimization. And I think they're led to that by the former president, Donald Trump, who has, has cast himself as a white man as the victim. He's not the only one. I think um, grievance politics is, is real. It goes back. It has a historical lineage. And it's funny because I think that what they've done is, is they have mastered the practice of gaslighting. And that's been, I mean, that's really, that's been the practice. That's been the practice of people of European descent in order to stay in power, in order to subjugate, control, and confine people who are, who are not white um, or deemed not white in order for them to maintain their power because there's been a, a false belief in a zero-sum game that, this, that there's only so much power in the world and they have to have it all. And if they're not on top, then, then they're being oppressed. <laughs> there's no in-between. There's no ability to actually say, you know, okay, we're not on top, but what if we're actually, you know, in the middle? What if we're, what if we're all actually equal, like equally protected by the law? In other words, equally accountable to the law. That is something literally that people of European descent, especially white men, just have not experienced. I mean, all you need to do is see the ratio of black men in prison compared to the ratio of white men in prison. And you just got to understand that. Either you understand that there has been a slant in our justice system that has that has not held white men accountable for their crimes and has um, has levied a, a heavy burden on the backs of black 
and brown families with regard to the justice system, in other words, inequitable interaction with it, you have to believe there's either black folks are inherently more dangerous or more criminal or something's wrong here because one in three people of African descent, men of African descent will see the inside of a jail or a prison cell at some point in their lives, while it's only one in 17 people of European descent, right? And and that goes right back to the beginning of the policing system, right? So I'm saying all of this not to go off on a tangent, but rather to say that the beginning of the policing system, it began literally as a construct to protect people deemed white in America in Boston and in the South. So in the South, particularly Virginia and North Carolina, South Carolina, slave patrols were were developed and in Maryland in the 1600s. So really go back that far back to the 1600s when it when people who were enslaved were rising up and saying, hell no, I won't go. I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to you're going to enslave me. And then so the patrols rose up and said, oh, yes, we will. And and so they were basically like a little posse created by neighbors, white neighbors, who had an interest in controlling insurrections. And so they would demand the papers, the the papers that would say that a Black person had the, the right to move between plantations, um, that they were not escaping, they were not trying to insurrect. And that's how, that's how the police began. That literally is how the police began. In fact, those men wore badges They were stars and they said slave patrol on them. They are the exact same badge that we now use to say sheriff or police officer, right? Now, up in Boston, in the 1700s, 1800s, late 1700s, 1800s, policing um, or patrols developed up there in order to police and control Irish and, um, and Scottish, but mostly Irish immigrants that were coming over and filling up the, quote, ghettos of Boston. And they wanted to contain the vermin, you know what they called them. They wanted to contain these people who they deemed not white. And so they created patrols. And and so those, those two places are the places where we find men of European descent creating uh, the justice system. But now... What you'll find is you'll find now in light of Black Lives Matter, in light of Black people, brown people rising up and saying, I won't do this anymore. We have to change this. What have white men learned to do? I'm the victim. We're the victim. So they absolutely erase, they, they, they attempt to erase the, the reality of that history by not allowing people to read about it in schools, by erasing it from the textbooks that they write and banning it from being taught in schools and calling it CRT because they are the victims now. They're being made ashamed of their history. Meanwhile, what they're doing is they are promoting um, lack of accountability for their leaders for January 6th, lack of the rule of law, again, January 6th, and heinous penalties for immigrants, new immigrants um, who are coming in from our southern border, where they're literally separating families and saying, well, you shouldn't have come over. So accountability is only going one way, and it has always gone one way. And one of the ways that white people have done that is by throwing down ironically, the victim card and the tears 
<laughs> like the tears are what are is like that that's the ultimate performance and it's like when a white woman cries you just can't even resist it it's like oh no <laughs> oh no the white woman is crying oh no right you know and i'll tell you what black folk go oh no because emmett till emmett till happened and and you know it was a white woman um miss bryant i think her name was caroline bryant she accused and it's not just emmett till she was in de- she was um emblematic but she accused a young 14-year-old boy of um, trying to accost her of assault and attempted rape. And as a result, that little boy was dragged from his bed, from his uncle's house where he was visiting for the summer. All he did was go in and try to buy something from their store. He did not do anything, according to her confession years later. But she pointed to him and said he did it in the courtroom and also um, that night when he was dragged onto the back of a pickup truck by her husband and her brother-in-law or her brother. And so Emmett Till was taken to a barn. He was um, beaten literally to a pulp. They stripped him, wrapped him in razor wire, connected him to a mill, uh, a millstone and threw him over the side of the Tallahatchie Bridge where he lay submerged underwater, buried underwater for several days until his body surfaced. White tears did that. I mean, in the 2000s, in an interview for a book called The Blood of Emmett Till by Tim Tyson, and she confessed to him that she she didn't hear him do anything, say anything. Emmett Till did nothing. And she's still alive. And she confessed that her words killed a young boy, a 14-year-old boy. And a courtroom in Mississippi recently, in the last month, decided that they were not going to prosecute her because a white woman, I mean, jails were not created for white women. They're not supposed to be there. So when the bird watcher, Christian Cooper, asked Amy Cooper to leash her dog in the park, and he is an avid bird watcher. African-American man and was in the park to watch birds that day. And they were explicitly in a section of the park where it was illegal to have your dog unleashed. And when he asked her to do that, she ignored him and refused and eventually began to call the police and told the police that she was being accosted by a Christian. But Amy was not being accosted, and thank God Christian had the, the wherewithal to videotape this interaction because what we saw actually was that she was holding her own dog by his collar in a way that was like strangling the dog. She eventually lost custody of the dog. But we saw her. I mean, this was the most shocking thing. And this was the same day that George Floyd died. This happened on the same day in different parts of the country. This was in the Northeast. This was in New York City. Like, 
the center of Metropolis, USA, Cosmopolitan, USA. And in that place, we find white women's toxic tears. We find the same tears that were cried by Carolyn Bryant being used to escape her own accountability. And all he was asking her to do was to put a leash on the dog. I mean, it wasn't like he was, you know, saying, I'm going to write you up. I'm going to, you know, citizens arrest. It was nothing like that. But she wasn't even willing and nor did she think she had to be accountable. She knew the state was going to come in on her side and she used that. She called the police and told him, I'm going to call the police on you. I'm going to I'm going to tell them that you're trying to rape me. She literally said this and then she did it. And he's standing there. And I mean, honestly, like the fear and that we know because of what happened in the same on the same day in another part of the country, what calling the police on a, on a black man could do. We also know because that was in 2000 and we know that in 2014, Eric Garner lost his life in New York City because of the police in New York. Toxic tears have been a modus operandi of people of European descent in there. It's one of the tactics that has been used and leveraged in order to protect supremacy, the supremacy of whiteness. Well, Jen Hatmaker and I jumped on a Facebook Live after the Christian Cooper um, incident and Amy Cooper incident. And um, we just said, we got to talk about this. We just really have to talk about this because this, and it wasn't even George Floyd. I mean, I knew that George Floyd was going to have all the marches and was going to, but I also knew that this moment right here is crystal, like it crystallizes what's happening here. So we really focused on what happened between Amy and Christian Cooper on June 1st, I believe, 2020, five days after George Floyd's death, we jumped on Facebook Live and said, hey, anybody who wants to come listen can. And we told the history. We, went, we, we basically traced the history of white women's toxic tears. And what was so fascinating about this was the way that, I mean, white women began to come out of the woodwork and actually share with us my own, my own executive um, assistant, who is also our operational director now, she told she told me in preparation for that broadcast that she was literally trained by a white man to use her tears to get out of traffic stops. <laughs> trained. She was at the traffic stop. She was at the traffic light. The police officer stopped her because she had done something. And she, you know, she basically got out of it. Somehow she got out of it. She didn't have to pay the ticket. But there was another white man in the car next to her watching all of this go down. And when the police officer left, he went up to her, he rolled up to her and, you know, motioned for her to turn, you know, please lower your window. So she did. And he said, next time cry <laughs> and you'll get out of the ticket altogether. Like it, you'll, you won't have to do anything. So she was like, oh my God, I was literally trained by a white man. How? to subvert authorities. So we talked about that. We, um, Jen talked about the reality that white women are not only trained to, to use their tears uh, to gain power, but also sex and their sexuality to gain power. So 
The reality for white women, this is actually something that has become very clear for me in talking with my white women friends for decades, actually, is that white women are conditioned, they are trained from a very young age by their fathers and their brothers to shrink their presence in the family, to shrink their voices in the public. In the public. So usually when you, when you hear a white woman, usually her voice is way up here. Like she has shrunken, literally shrunken her voice. Her voice is up here in her head. And, and I'll tell you what, I lived, I lived in a community for several years with white women who had done that. And also, and actually, and also other women who were living in and trying to thrive in this predominantly white community and all of the women where their voices were way up here. Now I'm, I was a theater person. So I learned at a very early age in college, right. To drop my voice into my, into my, my, my diaphragm and use all of my breath and ha, like, you know, like, and, and, and to allow my voice to be my voice, my whole voice, to let my voice fill up my body and the room. I was trained in theater to do that. So I was very much aware of where voices were being placed in and, and how they were being held back in my environment. And I found, I mean, really to the woman, like everybody, their voices were shrunken and they were in their throat, like at the back of their throat, they were holding their voices in and they were shrinking their bodies, trying to become a size zero. Now you look at black women, we're not trying to be no size zero. We are, we do, the more that we are engaged in white communities around white men, we actually do, we are more body conscious, but the further we are away from that, we're less body conscious and actually love our curves because we're human and humans have curves. But in white community, particularly between white men and white women, white men condition white women to shrink their presence in the family and in the world, in the workplace and in the world. So the tears are a way to gain power when white women live their lives in direct relationship through their fathers, their sons, and their husbands, and their brothers with white patriarchy. They live the closest to white patriarchy of anybody in America. And they then know what white patriarchy is capable of. They know the violence of it. They've experienced the violence of it. So white patriarchy at its core demands allegiance, demands supremacy, demands all of the power. So white women are living in direct proximity to that and therefore have to figure out ways to survive it. Tears are a way to survive white patriarchy and a way to be granted the privileges of whiteness, even though you're not a man. Empathy is actually one of the most foreign and least used muscles among white men. And part of the reason for that is the expectation that um, among, particularly the English, and the English kind of defined whiteness in America. The, it's the expectation of not feeling. I think you see this best in English culture, right? Whenever any emotion rises to the surface, what do they do? We cover it over. I mean, and that's a gentle way to put it, right? Like another frame for it or another aspect or angle on, on that lack of empathy 
is Bob Zellner has this theory that he calls the theory of the shrunken heart. And uh, do you mind? I could actually read you a section from Fortune. So speaking with Bob Zellner, veteran organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, I asked what drove white people to fight to the death to maintain white supremacy. He shared with me his theory of the shrunken heart. First of all, slavery was an act of war, he said. It had to be carried out every day against black people. In order to maintain the kind of plantation systems that we have under slavery, you had to commit acts of war and violence every day against black people. Now also, mind you, literally slavery on the continent of Africa was an actual act of war. Usually enslaved people were sold to slavers, to European slavers, because they were captives of war between two nations on the continent. So going back to Bob Zellner, slavers used frightful iron shackles, dehumanizing torture, masks, branding irons. They cut off ears and limbs for obstinate behavior and committed serial rape because this was war. And Zellner says, for centuries, through slavery and later through Jim Crow and the sharecroppers and economic system in the South, white Southerners had to constantly suppress their own feelings of sympathy and empathy for another human being. In the same way that farm children had to steal themselves when the chicken had its neck neck run, or the calf was killed, or the rabbit was knocked on the head so you could have it for supper, they had to have no feelings for that animal. In the same way, they had to have no feelings for that enslaved person or that person of color. For centuries, white people have shrunken their own hearts. That's his theory of the shrunken heart. This is a white man from Mississippi, right? So he was one of the leaders of the Mississippi movement, civil rights movement. I think what we what we have to acknowledge is that the lack of empathy is really at the heart of our inability to move forward in any significant way, in any lasting way over issues of race and to dismantle the, the hierarchies of human belonging that were created in order to secure, to entrench white male power, that one of the tactics along with tears has been to steal the heart, to shrink the heart so that power might remain. So it's, it's my contention. And one of the things that I talk about in Fortune is that reparation and truth-telling and allowing oneself to forgive, these are the paths to healing for people of European descent in America. It is seeking the truth about who you really are. Not that you're white, because nobody's born white. The, the state declares you to be white or not. Uh, there are people who are born actually from the Caucasus and not considered Caucasian in America. Because as the Supreme Court said in the 1920s, we weren't talking about those that, that caucus. <laughs> Right. So they tried to fight their way all the way to Supreme Court to be white. Because why? Because whiteness in America gives privilege, gives the ability at that point, gave the ability to vote, gave the ability to own land, gave the ability to do all kinds of things that exercise dominion, exercise power, agency and lack of whiteness shrunk your ability to exercise that agency. So one of the ways that white people have replicated that system of control over the generations and centuries is by teaching their children 
to shrink their hearts. What it looks like to become human again is to is to allow your heart to soften. So I think that that's that's what's so warped and backwards about this moment. What we are seeing is we're seeing an entire a stream of life of of people of European descent in America that are refusing actually refusing to be dethroned. <laughs> I'm refusing to even imagine another way of living together on this land, a way that shares power rather than dominates. Empathy will move you to tears. Um, empathy is a very good thing. And also, quite honestly, godly guilt is a good thing. The kind of guilt that recognizes I have done something wrong. I am not right right now. Um, and repentance is when is when you change, when you turn and walk in another direction, you live differently in the world. And so godly guilt might move you to tears, just as empathy will move you to tears. But what really matters is not the tears. The tears are the, are the force that moves us. What matters is that we move. What matters is that we actually repent that we actually choose another way of living together in the world. The question of guilt is real. And the tears that come from the reckoning of that guilt is real. And also the empathy that leads to a soft heart that can recognize one's guilt is real. But seeing it, crying about it, and not repenting really only adds weight to one's life really only adds burden, but repentance, ah, repentance, confession and repentance is the way to healing. Thanks to Sarah Mosliner and to Lisa Sharon Harper for sharing their time and their wisdom with us. I'm Stephen Backhouse. Join us next week for our fourth and final episode, looking at White Tears on the Tent Talks podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com. <laughs>